1: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver, more Siebert and I, Niels karstow where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If this is the first time we meet, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and all of the past episodes that you may have missed. And speaking about past episodes, for those who subscribe to our podcast via one of these podcast apps, you will have seen The first two of our Global Macro episodes, which we highly recommend you listen to as we have some amazing guests in the series. And of course, we would be ever so grateful if you would share these with your own social uh, network through various channels. We ask that because we truly believe that this will help investors make better and more informed decisions as we go into potentially and even more uncertain future than what we have seen so far. And while I'm at it, of course, uh, we would, of course, also appreciate if you would leave a rating, a review in iTunes, as it helps many more people to discover the podcast. Rob Moritz, great to be back with both of you this week. How are you doing? Hello, Niels. Hi, Rob.
2: Uh, Hi, guys. Obviously, it's been a, a month since I've done this regular podcast, but we've been doing the macro series as well, so it's only been a few days since I last spoke to you guys
1: it doesn't feel that long ago exactly no
2: it feels like i'm spending a lot of time with you guys recently
1: (laughs) yes which has been nice which has been nice which of course is good yeah 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 now although there hasn't really been any fireworks in the markets this week as far as i can tell on bloomberg the head of market strategy for absolute return fixed income portfolios at jp morgan asset management uh came out on friday with this cracker of a comment and and was quoted for saying, market valuations are entirely fabricated, authentically generated by all of the central bank liquidity and do not reflect fundamentals of the securities that they represent. Mr. Market, locked in this collective hallucination, central banks continue to run the show and investors need to be really cautious here. And of course, it wasn't really the only interesting thing that I noticed out this week in terms of comments, because there was another one from Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin who told reporters that we should consider forgiving all small loans on the government's next move under the Paycheck Protection Program. And of course, we know, at least from our conversations and what we've learned in our Global Macro Series, that at the moment there is no debt ceiling in the US until the summer of 2021. So it certainly opens the possibility of massive, quote-unquote, unfunded spending. But anyways, let's go back to our regular show, so to speak. Moritz, how was your week? Pretty good week work-wise, I think. Performance-wise,
3: probably not so much. I didn't have a look at the latest numbers as of Friday, but I believe I had a, another down week, but not a big one. Maybe um, half a percent or something like that. But as you alluded to, Niels, there wasn't really that much happening when I look back on the week you know, equities up and down a bit. What what I noticed is that the euro is getting stronger versus the dollar. And that is really a trend that has changed from, let's say, half a year ago or even less than that, where there was a lot of dollar strength and we were all along the dollar in our, in our systems. And then that's changing a bit. So the euro is going a bit stronger. Some of the bond markets moved higher when I looked at them, I remember. So that made me a bit of money. So I guess I lost in the equities again, and maybe in some of the commodities, I don't know. Anyway, not not a big loss. But um, I guess what's, what's making the headlines, as you say, is um, some of those stocks being, well, I'm not sure if those valuations are unfair or not, or undeserved or not, who knows. But, you know, Tesla still going strong north of 1500, 1550, something like that. And, you know, obviously, the, the, the moves, you know, there there has been that day where, it opened up by such an amount that it equaled the market cap of of, um, General Motors. So it it added a General Motors in the morning, and then it lost to BMW in the evening. I mean, you know, it's it's billions. That thing moves by 60 billion market cap in a day. I mean, just, you know, this number is amazing. But it is what it is. And many stocks going completely bananas (laughs) one way or the other. So it's an interesting episode. And I guess it's good to have a system to get you out of these trades or these positions. You know, if, if we had Jerry on, he would probably speak to the single stocks because making a judgment call on, you know, when that's going to end or not is, is just impossible, right? I mean, it's you hear people now come out about, you know, just mentioning Tesla again, they're updating their research targets. I mean, six months ago, their research targets were like, oh, 350, maybe 500, something like that, Right. Well, guess what? I mean it's at fifteen hundred. What are you doing now? And there, well, let's say the research chart, the price target is now thirteen hundred. I mean, come on, nobody's able to put a price target on anything like Tesla. I mean, it's pure guesswork. The the thing could be, you know, anything. So anyway, have a system. That's the right thing to do.
1: Yeah, and I think you you I mean, before we jump to you, Rob, I think you made you do make a good point, right, Moritz, because at the end of the day and this is something that the whole concept of what we're trying to do with our podcast and and through our careers with trading systematically and only looking at price is because we deep down believe that predictions is impossible especially about the future right and and so touching on on uh, on tesla and we did that when in, in in one of our upcoming conversations uh, with larry mcdonald on tesla specifically and where we talked about that currently the top analysts who follow or, or whatever they call it, you know, report on, on Tesla, their price targets are at the high end, 2300 or 2330 is the highest current price target for Tesla. And the lowest one from another big firm is $300, and the average being $750. And as you point, point out, Moritz, right now the stock is trading double that. So I think it, it really does go to show that what we try to do and what we try to encourage people to do and let's say don't try and you know guess about the future Just stick with the price and have some rules I think Tesla shows that that and actually also shows and I'm sure to Jerry will we'll talk about that next time Jerry's on in a few weeks I mean from a trend following position point of view I mean you would be long Tesla whether or not you think it's high highly priced or not you would be long Tesla because the price has gone up so interesting anyway Rob how are you? And even though, as you say, it's only been a couple of days since we last spoke, but in terms of trend following, it's been a few weeks. And so what's what's been going on?
2: Yeah, I'll just quickly pick up on the, the Tesla point because I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, so equity analysts, they, they try and do two things, right? They try and essentially try and forecast earnings. And because they produce price targets, they're also trying to forecast what the price earnings ratio will be, right? Price target, obviously, with a multiple of those two things. And I, I kind of think, you know what? Just focus on on forecasting earnings, guys. That's hard enough to do. Um, and and then you know the P/E ratio, you can just treat as some kind of random number. Um, and then we, what we should be doing is judging analysts on how well they, they forecast earnings, and then investors, if they want to forecast P/E ratios on top of that, that's what they should do. Because that that's you know in many ways a wholly different discipline, and it's such a you know it's entirely down to what the risk appetite of the market is, and that's really hard to forecast, and and trend following maybe does a reasonable job of that. But um, yeah, anyway, that's that's me getting off. No, but my... but
1: before you jump in, I mean, again, I think you pick up on a really interesting point, right? Because then you have a year like two thousand twenty. Most companies are not coming out with any estimates for earnings because yeah, they don't know what's going to happen. So so even that presents a problem, right? It, You're trying to yeah, simplify. Yeah, I mean, it's
2: it's really difficult just to forecast earnings, especially at these turning points we're having at the moment. And uh, I think going the extra mile and then trying to forecast what the price will be, it to me just seems a bit absurd. But anyway, so um, in terms of performance, um, so the last week actually was pretty good for me. It was up about probably about 85 basis points. And the, the the good performers there were mostly in fixed income. So Italian bonds did very well. Korean bonds did pretty well. Also made money in euro dollar. Interestingly, uh, losers, although not not big losers, quite small losers for me were in, in the German bonds. So the 10-year, the, the Bund. Uh, the five-year, the bobble, and uh, made also lost a little bit of money in in, in cattle and in soya beans. Uh, and over the slightly longer picture, so looking over the last month or so since I last uh, spoke to you guys, performance a bit flatter, so um, roughly, um, say, maybe down about 30 basis points, perhaps. Uh, but, but a similar pattern in terms of performance. So actually, the, the biggest performers were Italian and French bonds, eurodollar also up there. Korean bonds also up there, and uh, on the losing side, actually more commodities markets: so cattle, soybeans, wheat, and uh, pork bellies, and uh, the yen. Interestingly, so yeah, it's it is an interesting discussion, and, and um, I I was reminded of of the the famous quote by Chuck Prince in in 2008. You know, when when the music when while the music's playing, we'll keep dancing. The problem is, of course, it's really hard to know when the music's going to stop. But as a trend follower, you know, you say, right, I'm going to wait for the music to stop. And when it's been stopped for a few seconds, that's basically a stop loss. And uh, I'm then going to get out of the position and off I go. So I'm not going to be left in the middle of the dance hall going, well, is there another song coming or, you know, what to do? So, uh, so yeah, that, that means we can be kind of agnostic about what looks like insane valuations on things like Tesla and just say, well, you know, they are what they are. Um, and uh, we'll just stay in the position until it's no longer attractive.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and on Friday, we published, uh, you know, our second global macro conversation with actually with Preston Pish from the Investors Podcast, who's super interesting, right? Because he's gone from the really deep believer in value investing and he's kind of moved more towards the momentum and think that might work better in the future. But actually, when you start looking at it, those two type of strategies blend quite well together. But I think you're right. I mean, this thing about when... When all this stops, you you really just need to get out as quickly as possible. anyways, on our side, very similar picture to you guys uh, this week, small negative, nothing too exciting. Soybean oils, coffee, NASDAQ were kind of the losers uh, mainly. And then on the winning side, the ones that stood out was corn and the shats the German shats and net gas. And even the f- s and p five hundred did well because those two markets didn't really trade similarly uh, this week. And uh, the rest of the portfolio is pretty muted. Uh, Overall risk levels are very muted on our side. So nothing too exciting. Now, I think we've got a couple of things we wanted to uh, bring up in terms of uh, main things. Moritz, you've got some, I've got some. Um, Maybe you have some, Rob. But uh, why don't we just kick off with you, Moritz? Yeah, I just want
3: to say because you've mentioned uh, Preston, looking forward to hearing that one. And also you mentioned value. Not that I know all too much about value, but I think what we haven't mentioned is that you know, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, there has been a value deal, I think, in the past week. They purchased uh, the Dominion Natural Gas Pipelines for, I think, $9.5 billion or something like that. So here's an example where, you know, what Rob was saying, forecast the earnings. Well, many of the earnings for some of those tech stocks, they're, you know, essentially zero right now, forecasting them. Maybe you forecast a zero, so it's an infinite PE, infinite PE that you're putting onto these things. But here's a guy that actually was able to put a PE, probably a good one, onto this natural gas business and the pipeline business. And it's been a long, long time since Warren Buffett did the last deal. But here he is, he did one.
1: But speaking of Buffett, which is very interesting as well, and so this obviously would have changed, I'm sure, with this deal, but not by much, I imagine. I read an article this week because, you know, Buffett to me is someone that, um, obviously a lot of people love love him um, for what he's done and he's done amazing. But one of the things I've always thought about when I thought about Buffett was, oh, well, he's got a lot of diversification in his portfolio because he buys all these companies and he's got like I don't know hundreds of mm. of investments and what have you. But then I read this week that his Apple exposure now is massive. He's the largest investor, yeah, largest investor in Apple. He's got a forty three percent exposure in Berkshire Hathaway to Apple, and I'm thinking, hmm. That's not diversification the way I think about diversification. Of course, it stood him really well, because they have done well, but different. And, and then, of course, if you especially when you think about him proclaiming that he's not really a tech investor, I find it even more interesting that he's ended up with such a big position in tech.
3: I mean, the, uh, just looking at the chart of Apple, right? I mean, when did he buy the thing? I, I remember him saying, you know, he doesn't understand tech. And then all of a sudden, he got long Apple because he declared Apple to be a value stock, right? And I may be completely wrong on that, but I think, you know, the number that they initially purchased, it was less than 10% of their portfolio. I'm pretty sure about that. But probably that was 2017 or 2018 or something like that, right? Now, since, uh, I'm just looking at the thing, since 2017, Apple was trading at around 120. It's now close to 400. So there you go. If you don't rebalance, if you don't take those gains, right, then just the... The weight of that position in your portfolio, by nature of its price rise, increases, and this may be the the reason why it's now so large, because it doesn't sell.
1: <laughs> well, he does sell airlines. Well, airlines,
3: yeah, but not Apple, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and then if he sells the airlines, then that increases the weight of Apple vis-a-vis all the other things.
2: I mean, so he's cutting his losers and letting his winners run. So that that's not that different from our philosophy. Likes following, that,
3: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, we love that actually. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Moritz, you had something interesting as well you wanted to bring up now that we had Rob here. I've got something in general that I think both of you will um, have a view on. So why don't we just kick it off?
3: I think what you're alluding to is uh, the discussion that we also had a little bit offline about adding markets to portfolios. Is that what you're we're thinking about?
1: Yeah, I think it was a couple of uh, posts that Mark had posted. Is that correct? Mark, yeah, yeah I think he's correct. Mark yeah.
3: Ritjuszymski, who we're going to have on our show next week, by the way. So I'll just put it out there and, and and let me try to summarize it as good as I can. It's kind of like the idea of adding new markets or additional markets to a systematic trend-following portfolio. Question, should you do it? Should you not do it? And what drives the decision-making? And we've heard a couple of voices saying, well, there's kind of like this limit to the effectiveness of that thing. And, and maybe you should have less markets and more of a conviction or more of a larger position in those markets because if and when they trend then you will make more money from these trends whereas if you have too many markets then maybe you're just catching too many false trends and you get whips too much and um, those markets aren't all too different uh, to each other anymore so it just produces trading costs and stuff like that and 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 i i have a view on that i don't want to you know uh spell it out right now, but um just like to hear you guys on that. You know, what do you think? Adding markets or not adding markets.
2: I think it's well known that I'm a big fan of diversifying across markets. So um I, I guess the the issue is that firstly there's probably less point in adding markets once correlations get quite high. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily because you're gonna you're gonna end up with a lot of markets that aren't going anywhere in your portfolio. It's more actually the fact that from a pure mathematical point of view, there's not really a lot of difference between owning, say, let's just pick a simple example, owning all of the U.S. bond markets on futures markets—the twos, the fives, you know, the tens, the the twenties, and the ultra—owning all of those, but not, and then owning all of those, but not the ten-year. There's going to be almost no difference in the performance of those, of you know, those two um, things. There'll be a little, tiny, tiny bit of advantage from the ten-year. There will be some idiosyncratic risk, but but not very much. So you you know you can think about this that that you can sort of replicate the performance of a of a very large number of trend following uh, markets with a smaller number with a little bit of tracking error and the smaller the number you have the the bigger the tracking error will be that's one way of thinking about it the issue for me is the fact that I think it's really hard to know in advance which markets are going to trend and which aren't and that that seems to me the 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 kind of fundamental issue here and We have spoken about this before. I think the idea that you can say in advance, "Yes," I can understand why you can you could say, "Yeah, these." I'm adding this market, not adding this market because it's you know so highly correlated with something I've already got. It's not really much point. But I find it much harder to say in advance, "This market here, it's clearly going to do badly in, in trend falling terms." Well, why? What's your evidence for that? Is it historic performance? Well, yeah, but if I look at historic performance, I find it very difficult to to see. Differences in performance that are actually statistically significant. So there might there might be quite a big difference in the historic performance between two arbitrarily chosen markets, but actually, if I look at the distribution of the returns, there's not really enough of a difference there to justify having a, a weight to one of zero and a weight to one of you know of a hundred or whatever however you want to think about it. So that that's kind of the fundamental starting point I come from. Um, so any anyone who says to me diversification is a bad idea, they have to kind of Come with a convincing argument as to why why I'm wrong. <laughs> so please, you know, I, I agree with me or, or 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 and tell me what Mark would say um, that, that, that disagrees with what I have just said.
1: So as as Marge, as you said, it's something we've talked about before, and and so I have voiced my opinion about this, but I'm going to try and refine it a little bit because I do think it's it's important. So the overall concept of diversification, I'm a big 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 believer in. My challenge is that I've seen managers who have just gone for, in my opinion, silly number of markets, right? I mean, 200, 300 markets. And if you do that, you must end up having a lot of markets being added that are highly correlated within the same sector, right? And this is where I differ in opinion, where I just don't think that having yet another equity market. I mean, first of all, my my assumptions are they have to be liquid. They have to be exchange traded. I don't want to trade something obscure in China or anything like that. I mean, it has to be... So so it, that weeds out a lot of markets and why I also think that there, you know, if you will stick within those rules and have certain liquidity minimums, uh, there aren't that many markets really to add. But... And I picked this up a little bit from the conversations I had with Harold at TransTrend when I've spoken to him a few times on the podcast because historically... They were a firm that went to the high number of markets and then they've scaled it back subsequently. And so in my s- sort of simplifying reasoning for why I don't believe that you should just keep adding markets for the sake of adding markets is because of this correlation effect, right? So if you keep adding markets that are highly correlated and, I, and, and when I say that, mostly in the financial space, right? Because I actually think that adding a lot of commodities to your portfolio makes a lot of sense. And even in, in energies where you, where you could say, well, most of the time they're correlated, sure. But we also know that sometimes they're certainly not correlated. And, and one, one massive move in net gas can make the whole year's performance. So I do think generally finding liquid commodities is a good idea. But finding equity market number 17 or number 18 to your portfolio, I just think that that's less of a of something that you need. And then going back to this point that I tried to explain about conviction, and that is I think if you have too many small positions, so let's just say you go to 200 markets, and you want to stay within, because otherwise I don't think it's a fair comparison, you want to stay within... Broadly, the same overall risk of your portfolio. That means each position has to be much smaller. So that just means, and I, I and I pick it up also from conversations with Jerry, where he said, "Oh, back in 1991 or whatever year it was, you know, uh, Natgas made all the money for me that year." Well, it wouldn't have made a lot of money for him or for anyone that year. It if, if it was a minuscule position, number 199 market in your portfolio. That that is my core belief that you can end up having just too many markets that waters out your exposure to some extent and so yes, you're right by not adding all markets you will miss out on some trends for sure, I I accept that, but I do think that you can find 50, 60, 70, thereabouts number of markets that overall give you pretty much all the diversification you need and anything above that is not going to add a hell of a lot in terms of diversification because it's going to be, you know, a two-year bond uh, instead of a five-year and 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 you know and a, and a ten-year and I mean it's going to be smaller uh, benefits. So so that's my yeah that's my view and I think Mark kind of got to that conclusion as well and it kind of goes back to Ray Dalio's holy grail about diversification where he says if you can find fifteen uncorrelated return streams you're doing really well but that's the point uncorrelated return streams, not correlated return streams, you don't need to add too many of those.
3: Let's use the example of natural gas. I just want to make one point here. If natural gas were a market that is consistently uncorrelated to everything else in your portfolio, let's just make that assumption for, for a second here, right? We know that's not true. It is correlated to other energy markets, but let's just say the correlation of that market were zero. If that's true, then the risk size of that market at least in my world, the way I do it, will never become tiny. It will always stay at the original risk size, right? So even if I have natural gas plus another, say, 50 markets, or if I have natural gas and another 200 markets, if natural gas is uncorrelated, natural gas will always have the same footprint. So if what you just described, it has a massive trend, then I will benefit in that trend of natural gas in the same way that I would have been benefiting from it you know 20 years earlier when I you know had had a smaller portfolio so the the analysis of correlation here I think is really important we know and and you know this to me is the golden rule it is diversification is really the only free lunch maybe there's others that we haven't discovered yet but I'm pretty sure that one is is really good for us right so we want to maximize our diversification and if i can find markets that are not perfectly correlated to other markets, then mathematically, there is a benefit of adding them. Now, of course, as Rob said, if the correlation is, say, north of 0.8 or even north of 0.7 or whatever the case may be, right, then the diversification benefit that you will get from the addition of that market may be super, super small, right? So this is true, for instance, in the equities. Many equity markets are very highly correlated. And you know, you add the Hang Zhang to the Nikkei and, you know, uh, some of those other markets. Yeah, I, I know, I mean, the correlation is 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8, you know, it changes a bit, but it's, it's substantially positive. So what that means for me is, well, if I'm doing that, then I need to reduce the weights of that cluster, right, of those individual markets so that because the, the 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 probability is now that when they catch a trend, or if they catch a trend, they will probably catch it roughly about the same time, and they will all catch it, right? So I don't, I, I cannot be too exposed by giving them all the original risk size, right? So they need to be traded smaller. But my thinking now is that, well, because they're not perfectly correlated, and because I have more markets that are not perfectly correlated, I have just increased the probability of catching a trend because I have more markets in the portfolio. Because every once in a while, one of those markets may be behaving in a weird and different way than all the others. And then I may be onto something. And those benefits may be small, right? But they are there. And if your portfolio size allows for it, then I don't see why if you wanna have an efficient portfolio, you would be leaving that on the table because it's there for you to grab.
2: Absolutely. One well, another way of thinking about this is you can think of those 15, you know, mythical 15 uncorrelated return streams. You, you can call them markets if you like. And they're kind of synthetic markets in the sense that they they may not, there may be that one of them actually is natural gas. It may be the only way of getting access to a particular return stream is, is through trading natural gas, in which case that will have, you know, if there are 15 of these these things, let's say there's 10 of these things in your portfolio, that will basically have 10% of your risk capital. And it might be that another one of those uncorrelated return streams is equities. And that means yeah, about 10% of your portfolio will be in equities. But that might be split them between 20 markets. And you're not taking anything away from natural gas by 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 you know by having you maybe have a little bit extra in that in that bucket because it because it does have more sort of internal diversification. It's not just a single market. That's the mathematical way of thinking about it. And the other way of thinking about it is the way that Moritz said is that by having all 10 of these things, rather than just picking one at random and saying, "Okay, for my equity bucket, I'm just going to trade S&P and leave everything else out. By having all those other things in there, you're kind of owning a lot of little call options on the fact that one or two of them may do something weird or unusual and may save you when the rest of the equity bucket isn't doing that well. So that's an important point. Another important point to make when thinking about correlations, and I've mentioned this before, the correlation between trading systems is lower than the correlation between instruments. So even though the correlation between US twos and fives um, in returns is about 95, 96%, maybe higher now actually, uh, with the yield curve control coming in, the the correlation of trend following two years and trend following five years is lower. Might be 0.8, something like that. I mean, 0.8 still, it's not a fantastically low correlation, but, but it may still be worth adding something with a 0.8 correlation to your portfolio. The other important thing to remember is that as we, there's kind of this mental image that you have this big pile of risk capital, and every time I take some away and, and put it into you know lots of potentially correlated markets, um, I'm kind of, you know, it's, it's a sort of zero-sum game. But that's not true, of course, because the more uncorrelated things you have in your portfolio, because we're always trying to target a particular risk level, the more leverage will apply. And because we're trading futures, we can apply quite a lot of leverage um, before we, we start to even think about worrying about margin issues. Um, so in fact, by going from, say, 10 markets to 50 markets, it might be that, that you, you're effectively um, going from, you know, a level of, level of leverage of X to leverage of 2X. That means you've effectively doubled the amount of risk capital you've got to play with. So it might be that, that actually natural gas or this kind of idiosyncratic market ends up with even more risk capital than it would in the original portfolio with any 10 instruments because you've had all of this this sort of internal diversification and that's allowed you to increase the leverage. Uh, and therefore, you may end up actually with a, a bigger bet in natural gas in a portfolio with more markets than in a portfolio with, with only a small number of markets.
1: I mean, I think obviously both of you make uh, valid points. I've got a couple of um, things where I would say I differ in opinion. One is if you add more assumptions. My assumption is, well, I don't know anything, so I'm going to treat all markets the same why do I know that net gas should have a full position and other markets should have a smaller position? I don't know that. I could make that... Of course, I can make that assumption, but it's just adding more assumptions, and I want to try and say, okay, actually, I don't know anything, so I'm going to treat everything equal. And there you're right that it means I limit the number of markets, and so I'm going to miss some opportunities but on the other hand if i get a trend in in fives and twos but they're so small in positions because i have to divide it up between you know within the sector risk and all of that okay maybe i lose something by having that additional diversification who knows so i just think it's different shades of gray so to speak and there's no right or wrong answer i think simplistically i fall in the camp where you just say well i'm not going to make too many assumptions i'm just going to treat all markets the same and also the other thing to rob's point I mean, it's all well and good to say, okay, I'm going to go from 10 to 50 markets, but in fact, I may be only doubling my my real risk, even if I add another, you know, 40 markets. But we all know that when, when we have a crisis, markets tend to become incredibly correlated, regardless of what sector they're in. So from a risk point of view, again, you have to... You can't take the same amount of risk in 50 markets as you can in 10, in my opinion, and stay within an expected overall similar risk situation so something has to give in that sense but i'm sure we'll get back to this topic it's it's a fascinating topic to to discuss now we don't have much time today because we are actually going on another recording uh, shortly but just maybe just to throw in something very brief and then we can think about talking about it next week or next time we we meet up but i just want to highlight one thing which i think is always good when it comes out and that is aqr who come out with great research, they actually came out with a paper this week talking about the benefit or, or not between trend following and buying out-of-the-money put options as your tail hedge. And they conclude by saying, we now weigh the variety of pros and cons discussed in the paper. Unlike trend, long put strategies have had persistently negative returns despite or perhaps because of their gains during crashes, the cost of valuable insurance service. This jives with the balance of economic theory, which would suggest a negative risk premium for insurance-like strategies. Yet, the documented return drag may be mitigated if the tail hedge allows an investor to take more equity risk and earn a premium for it, or if active tail hedge managers can offer alpha over put. I'm gonna not going to read the whole... Um, a conclusion except for the last three or four lines, and then maybe you have a quick comment, both of you. Ultimately, the long-term cost argument tips the scales in favor of trend. This view is reinforced by the inevitable investor impatience during the dry spells when tail insurance costs are paid year after year before the tail event materializes. A good strategy is one that you can stick with. Put-based tail hedging too often fails this test trend strategies do not offer as direct or explicit tail protection but they have a strong empirical record and you have a better chance of sticking with trend
2: this is like the um the kind of taking the the twitter dispute between uh, <laughs> <laughs>
3: Cliff and, uh, scene. uh, uh
2: a certain gentleman from the middle east uh, <laughs> and uh, a certain american gentleman uh, who who uh yeah so, um, so the, yeah, I mean, it, it's a. I had a quick look at the paper this morning, actually, and um, it, it's definitely worth reading. I mean, it is an argument, and, and there's been quite a lot of research on both sides. And one of the nice things, actually, about um, the last few months and the debate is actually quite a few people have been producing kind of hard research on this, whereas before that, I think I think there was a lot more in, intuition around it. So, um, that, I think it's definitely definitely worth looking at. Um, and uh, yeah, I think. I think one of the things about tail protection, this is this is something I've realised, is um, it's it's something that people like because it does have this characteristic of being a really massively positively skewed strategy. So it's a bit like buying a lottery ticket or betting on a an outsider um, in a horse race. Um, so when you win, you win big. Um, so th- that means a couple of things. It means that when when people successfully you know do well out of these strategies, they're extremely happy about it and they tell everybody. Um, and the people who um, didn't do this have a bit of regret and think, oh, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I buy You know, out of the money puts in, in February of this year? I'd have, I would have made so much money. And they don't think about, yeah, the long, the long years of paying out protection and getting nothing back. So, yeah, it's um, obviously you'd kind of expect AQR to come down on the, on the, on the side, more on the side of trend and, and risk parity and less on the side of, of just buying out of the money puts. But, um, yeah, it's still an interesting paper and definitely worth reading.
3: I haven't read it yet, but I will. So uh, let's uh, have me comment on that next time we speak.
1: Okay, no, that's fair. Just as I mentioned, it is a short uh, episode this week, but uh, that is because we are publishing a lot of other episodes. So let me jump straight to just to see where we are in terms of performance. The BTOP50 index is up 76 basis points for the month of uh, July, uh, but still down 2.1% for the year. Uh, Sock Gen Trend Index, also in positive territory, 43 basis points, um, but down 2.26% uh, percent for the year. Sock Gen Trend Index, up uh, about three quarters of a percent, and pretty much flat for the year now. The uh, Short-Term Traders Index is down 57 basis points and up still for the year, 2.4%. Bridge Alternatives, up half a percent in July, down percent for the year. And uh, in comparison, MSCI World, up 4%. 4.18, to be precise, this month, but still down 2.74 percent this year. Any final thoughts? Any final comments you want to leave our listeners with?
2: I mean, it's it's a bit of a, a bit cheeky, but but pointing people to my latest blog post, which relates both to what we discussed um, this week and also last time I was on on this this podcast. So one of the things you you can do, um, if you're worried about the fact that you're going to be having too many markets missing out on trends trying to adjust your positions dynamically so the stronger the trend the larger the position you have and this is something we talked about before um and we had this debate about whether to use binary signals where you just go long or short one unit of risk or whether to do this thing where you scale in and out um so i did a little bit of of research and and um to just kind of just show this effect in action and and uh, um it, it sort of works. One, one interesting thing that, that people may not be aware of is that the effects are quite different depending on the speed that you're trend following. So if you're trend following quite quickly, the story is exactly as I said. Um, basically, as the, your, your, you know, the, the, the trend gets stronger, you should increase your position. Um, but if you're trend following slowly, actually you get a more interesting effect, which is that when the trend gets really strong, you actually want to start reducing your position. So it looks like maybe the trend's being exhausted or something. So so that, that, that's kind of an, in, an interesting kind of really subtle nuance around the, the discussion we had last time. So
1: Absolutely. I'm sure that is a topic we will want to yeah. discuss also because we have different uh, approaches, let's put it that way, within our little uh, community. But so on that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. We hope that uh, you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoy making them. And of course, Make sure that you send questions uh, to us. You can do that by sending them to info at toptradersandplug.com and we'll do our best to answer them as soon as we can. From Rob, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week on this series but of course throughout the week on our new Global Macro Series. In the meantime, be well.